Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. I want to thank Efrat Bloch for recommending today's guest for the show. Thank you so much for all your messages and feedback. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast, so if you enjoy the show, you might enjoy the other podcasts on the network. Check out Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, Chochmat Nashim, and Let My People Eat. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Sharona Eshet Cohen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Today, we're here to talk about Jewish feminism and how it's different from feminism as we know it in Western society. And you have come highly recommended by one of our listeners. So I'm excited to dive into this conversation and learn all about the work and the research, all the things that you've been studying and spending a lot of time on. So welcome and tell us a little bit about yourself, both professionally and religiously, and then we'll go into your work. Sure. So I grew up in California, in San Diego, California. I made Aliyah about nine years ago. I grew up what I guess most people in the West would call conservadox, but over the years I became much more observant and that definitely came from like a very nationalist place, meaning it was, it like came from a sense of Jewish pride and that turned into being more observant. And you moved to Israel on your own or with a family? Yeah, no, I moved to Israel on my own. Actually, I was on the same flight with one of my good friends. So I guess we made all that together. But yeah, I, I did make Aliyah on my, on my own, but my I have one sister and my mom also lives in Israel. So I definitely have family here, which is very lucky. Talk to me about your professional background. I've been working in Jewish nonprofit work since I graduated college in a wide variety of different nonprofits and a lot of different types of roles. One of those roles that I work for professionally and also on a volunteer basis has been at my husband's organization called the Vision Movement where we we do a lot of work applying post-colonial theory to Jewish issues. And through that, specifically through my work with Jewish identity and ideas of decolonizing Jewish identity, I came to start trying to apply it to Jewish women's issues and created what I term Hebrew feminism, which I'm sure we'll get into today. Yeah. Okay, I just do want to mention how you are pursuing doctoral studies at Ben-Gurion University. I'm on a current break for <laughs> several years now. I might return at some point, but I definitely have that as part of my background. And you have yeah. a master's degree in theories of nationalism at UCLA. Yeah. I just felt like that was important to add that you didn't mention it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you told us a little bit about how you got started in this work. Why are you doing something normal? Tell us how did you start doing this? <laughs> That's a very good question. It actually started when I was in college. I went to UC Berkeley and I was very active in like pro-Israel activism. I had helped start the pro-Israel student organization there. And when I was a third year on campus, I was physically assaulted by the president of the Students for Justice in Palestine while we were doing a pro-Israel rally on campus. And that ended up turning into, it's a long story, but in short, it turned into a whole lawsuit against the university under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. I was suing, there, there's some background that's required, but basically the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act says that 
a publicly funded institution can't receive funding if it engages in discrimination or allows discrimination on the basis of, I think, race, gender, and religion. national origin. No, not religion, oh. national origin. At the time, it wasn't religion. So there were some Jewish organizations at the time that were trying different ways of getting Jews to be protected under that. So some were trying to get religion to be one of the boxes protected that, classes. yeah, protected classes that couldn't be discriminated against. I was one of those first lawsuits and th- mine was actually not, mine was actually with the intent of trying to get Jews protected under the national origin clause. However, that lawsuit ended, which, which was relatively good. What came out of it for me personally was that I became really interested and engaged with this idea of Jewish identity and identity politics and how it affects Jews in the United States. So through that, through that engagement with that concept, I started really getting interested in this idea of Jews, Jews in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity and religion and what it means to be a Jew and and how we should be defined, what box we fit into or boxes or what boxes we don't fit into rather. And that led me down a whole journey. What do we need to know about Jewish identity and this area that you're studying that's not already obvious? My assumption is, is it a race or a religion? And that's where all the confusion comes from. Am I correct? Yes. And my answer is that we are not, not only are we neither a race nor a religion, we're also not an ethnicity or even really a culture or We don't fit into any of those boxes. And why don't we fit into those boxes? Because the Jewish people existed before any of those boxes existed, meaning before the concept of race or religion or nation, even uh, all of those, those concepts are, are like Western terms that came about after we were already long in existence. So we don't fit into any of those boxes. And yet we kind of fit into, into all of them, meaning we can tweak our identity. And in some cases, erase aspects of our identity to kind of like shove ourselves into one of those boxes. And depending on how we want to be perceived or how society wants to perceive us, given whatever their motives are, we we can be fit. And in different societies, you see that we fit into different boxes, meaning in Nazi Germany, we were very clearly a race. In America, where it suits our needs often, or it has until until recent decades, so did our needs to be a religion, you know, we can kind of fit ourselves into that box. But to be like truly Jewish, none of those really, really define us accurately. Okay, so what does define us accurately? Do you have an answer to that question? Good question. The most accurate term that I found is civilization, the same way that you might refer to the Mayan civilization, meaning the Mayan people had spiritual component, like a religious component. They had some sort of peoplehood component. They had an ethnic component. I guess we kind of fit that. And and the truth is, when you talk about the Near East, you know, the, the ancient Near East, in, in general, we refer to the different civilizations, which is where we stem from. So I guess if you have to pick one, that would be the term I would pick. Talk to us about your transition into Jewish feminism. How do you get into that? Did something happen to you personally that made you very passionate about it or curiosity? For several years, I was engaged with this idea of decolonizing Jewish identity. And I'm a woman. I just felt that there were a lot of facets of my identity that weren't being addressed fully by talking about just Jewish identity, because to me, being a Jewish woman is very different from just being a Jew. 
or from being a Jewish man. And I think that our experiences are vastly different. And I, I just felt like I wanted to create a theory that incorporated that component of my identity too. Talk to me about the differences between Western liberal feminism and first tell us what Western liberal feminism is and then we'll go into post-colonial feminism, which I'm assuming is Jewish feminism, right? Sort of. We'll get there. (laughs) Okay. So define those terms for us, please. (laughs) Sure. Okay. So I'll start from the beginning. Western feminism started with what's referred to as three waves of feminism. The first wave, it being in the early 1900s, like basic civil rights, like suffrage and property rights for women. The second wave came during the sexual revolution, and it had a lot to do with like free right to birth control, making marital rape illegal, the right to not be discriminated or sexually harassed in in the workplace. And in the 90s came the third wave, which was less about, I guess, legal rights and more about the way that we understand women, for example, in media or in society, what it, uh, gender, beauty, I, m- more idea focused. Give me an example. Of the third of the 90s revolution. I guess so, so like the way that women are portrayed in the media, I think would be important. The way that this idea, should girls be associated, like do they have to be associated with the color pink or the way that children's toys are presented to girls versus boys, those kinds of things. Okay. A little less legal, legalistic. Okay. So that is Western feminism. And just to give, to broaden the perspective a little bit, that came about in a society that very much focused on the success of the individual and the individual's, I guess you could say, best life, if that makes sense. So women in that society who traditionally were not given the same access to individual success were trying to achieve that through the law. That's how Western feminism, that's Western liberal, liberal feminism. I'll just say alongside the second and third waves, it's not its own wave, but it was, it was kind of parallel to those is something called critical race feminism, which is a form of critical race theory. And that critique basically looked at Western feminism and said, this is very nice for white women in Western society who have specific needs that need to be met for them, but it's not addressing the needs of women of color who have totally different of totally different needs and totally different experiences. So that also, that's not exactly post-colonial feminism, but that's also something that I work to apply to the Jewish experience in America. And could you give me examples? I'll actually, I'll give you some personal examples. So there is a critical race feminist thinker, Mary Matsuda, and she talks about something called multiple consciousness, which is the idea that women of color, they have this they have like many different conscious consciences, consciences, meaning they have this like identity consciousness of being a woman and this identity consciousness of of being a certain race. And when they present themselves to the world, they're usually presenting only one of these consciousnesses at a time, meaning that for fear of not being fully understood by presenting her, she's an Asian American woman so for fear of not presenting herself as of not being understood as like an asian american woman she presents herself in certain situations as an asian american that's like her identity and in other situations as a woman so now i just want to give a caveat whether or not 
any Jewish women listening to this identify as a, as a person of color, I don't think is so relevant. What I think is relevant is how well a lot of these concepts from critical race theory do apply to the Jewish female experience. Even if you want to identify as, if a person wants to identify as white, I think it's very clear that we often feel this way. So a personal example would be when I was in high school, I was on the varsity roller hockey team and I was the only girl on the team. And it was, it was very cool. We were actually a very good team. We like won a lot and we won a lot against schools that had like enormous, not Jewish, like not Jewish men. And there was a lot of pride that came with that. And I found, I personally found that when I, when I talked about my experience on the team, I either like I, I presented it differently depending on who I was talking to. Meaning when I talked about it with like non-Jews that I knew, I would talk about how like it's so cool that our Jewish high school is, you know, going up against all of these other schools and we're really good and we keep winning. But when I would talk about it with like my girlfriends, then we would talk about like, whoa, what's it like to be the girl on the team? And like the Jewish component wasn't so relevant. But the truth is that there were experiences that I had that were both that were unique to being a Jewish woman, meaning there were times, for example, I guess getting getting changed to like to play a game. Now, as a Jewish woman and I went to a Jewish school, there are issues of modesty that are important to me that might not be important to to other women or in a different way. And also, but like that, that's an aspect of it that's unique to being a Jewish woman, meaning it's not just about being a Jew or, or just about being a woman. There's there's like something rolled up into one experience of being a Jewish woman trying to figure out where to get dressed and how to get dressed in a modest way with a team full of men. So where um, did you get dressed? <laughs> depended on the it depended on the rink, <laughs> but uh-huh. but sometimes you know. Okay, you figured it yeah. out. Okay, yeah. so we have this double identity that goes together one is usually chosen over another depending on the circumstances to express itself so this is the main reason how post-colonial feminism is different from western feminism no that's not post-colonial feminism no no, that's critical race feminism that that was just a side point okay (laughs) that i think is very relevant to jewish women in america there are a lot of other thinkers i think that have talked about other aspects of of unmasking oneself and having to unmask both their female and whatever in our case Jewish identity as one. That's by Marwa Montoya. She just it's another word for decolonizing. What's the next thing we need to know? Sure. So the next thing that I work on is called transnational feminism, which is still not quite postcolonial feminism yet, but we will get there. Transnational feminism. Let me backtrack. White girl feminism. Or uh, sorry. Western feminism is often exported to the rest of the world in something called, in a concept called global feminism. Global feminism is the exportation of white girl feminism to the rest of the world. An example of that would be the sanitary pad revolution in India, for example, meaning women in India, you know, statistics have shown that they miss school two weeks a year and they end up dropping out because because they get their periods and and they have no way of, you know, they're just using dirty rags, they get infections. And there's all sorts of problems created by women not having sanitary pads in India. So a global feminist response has been to bring sanitary pads to India and to save the Indian women that live there. 
That's just one example of many. Transnational feminism, which is work that I'm involved in, is a critique of global feminism as a form of cultural imperialism, meaning global feminism doesn't take into account the unique cultures and value systems and prioritization of values in other cultures and bringing Western feminist values to those cultures can actually end up harming women even more than it helps them. So for example, the pad revolution, it's actually been really harmful to Indian women because for thousands of years, they've had, they actually have had a very sanitary system of using rags that they sanitize in the sun because they live in India and they have that ability. And the statistics with regards to school dropouts are just as high for men, meaning that it's not necessarily attributed to women getting their periods. But one thing that has changed with the sanitary bad revolution is that women in India are now hooked on monthly buying sanitary pads from Western companies that are profiting off of it. And this especially comes at a time when in the West, it's actually become very fashionable to use reusable methods of maintaining period, for example, cups or or like period underwear. One thing that has come from bringing sanitary pads to India is that you have an enormous population now hooked on disposable sanitary pads that they have to buy from corporation, like from Western corporations in perpetuity. So it actually hasn't helped Indian women at all, but it has profited a lot of Western companies. So that's one example of like a critique of transnationalist critique of, of a global feminist initiative. So in terms of how that applies to Jews in general, well, the um, question is, has yeah, it enhanced sure. their life or was, did it not enhance their life? Meaning if people want to use rags, so you're asking, have they like, are they actually, my question are they is, actually if not they are benef- if they are benefiting from it, I, I thought you were going to go now there's so much more garbage and that's bad. That's, that's even worse. But that's not where you went. <laughs> no, no. I'm Meaning saying if women actually, had to stay home yeah. because of the rags, but now they can go back to school or to work, then whether they want to pay for it or not, they are benefiting. That, that's, that, that would be true if that was true. But the statistics do not actually show that women are, are made to stay home because they can't manage their peers properly. In Indian culture, in, in a lot of subcultures in India, the woman's tradition is to separate herself from her family when she has her period, which, by the way, is also gaining a lot of traction in the West. Like there are all these like red tent movements now in the West for exactly like red for what? exactly that to give red tent w- movements. This I, I idea, heard about this it idea, once, but right, no, it, it's just this idea of women giving themselves the opportunity to rest and recuperate during that time because it's a big strain on the body and to like take that time for themselves. So there, there was already that long-standing tradition in a lot of places in India. It doesn't mean that that they were incapable of managing their periods. It just means that that's part of their culture to separate themselves. Sanitary pads won't necessarily change that if that's the reason. And in terms of dropping out of school, there's no there's no research to suggest that that it's because of sanit. There, the statistics that have been shown at these conventions that are often sponsored by by corporations that are invested in in this project leave out the fact that the rates are just as high for high school boys so okay it's okay. really like okay. there's let's really a lot of now this is not the topic yeah. of anyway. our conversation so let's go to the next thing sure
So in terms of how this applies to women, Jewish women, specifically, this should be applied to the experience of women in Israel and how women in the West try to bring, I guess, Western feminist initiatives to the Israeli population. For example, Women of the Wall, you know, lately there there have been a lot of attempts to force the Haredi communities in Israel to adopt practices that neither the men nor the women are, are interested in adopting. And I can give some examples of that. Yeah, sure. A few years ago, there was a court case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court in Israel. There is a Haredi, a Haredi radio station that does not have women on the radio station. It's, it's all male. The listenership is probably also women, but the, the people are all male who are on the station. So there was a lawsuit that was funded by the reform movement in Israel, which most of the leaders come from America, trying to force, force this radio station to include women's voices. Now, this radio station really is listened to almost exclusively by the Haredi population. And none of the women who were pushing this lawsuit were coming from within that community. So that's an, like an excellent example of a global feminist initiative, trying to liberate Haredi Israeli women without giving them any say in whether or not they actually even want that. A transnational approach to that. And the women of the wall. Women of the wall, the same thing. The vast majority of the women of the wall are coming from Western countries. There are a few Israelis, but the vast majority of the Israeli population is not either is opposed to it, like strongly opposed to it, or kind of indifferent. It They're, being like, more space yeah. for women at the wall? No, no, the women of the wall movement wasn't, they're not pushing for more space at the wall. They're pushing for, for women to read Torah at the wall. Okay. The women of the wall are also, it's, a, it's very much a liberal Western initiative that's either opposed by the majority of the population or it's not something that is coming internally. Those are good examples of a global feminist approach. The transnational critique would be if you really want to quote unquote save these Haredi women, then you should go talk to them and ask them what they feel they're missing, what they, what initiatives they want, what initiatives they're already probably working on, and how you can be an ally in their struggle. That would be the appropriate way to go about that. Yeah. So what issues would you say are relevant in Jewish feminism? I think there are a lot of issues. Some of the ones that I personally spend a lot of time thinking about are the shidduch crisis, which is a crisis, I guess it's called a, the matchmaking crisis. It's, it's the, the difficulties that Jewish women are facing finding a spouse, specifically women in their 20s and 30s. Another issue I think is the, the Aguna crisis, which is women who need to, who want to get divorced from their husbands, but their, their husbands will not give them a get. So they're essentially chained, which is what Aguna means, and they can't get remarried. Another issue I think that really needs to be addressed is this idea of women wanting to feel a sense of valued leadership in Jewish communities. And so far that's been, that's kind of been addressed by creating these like female rabbi titles like Rabat or Maharat or even this concept of Yoset, Alakha, I think that definitely needs to be addressed as well. But again, all of these, I guess I'll get to what I call Hebrew feminism now or post-colonial feminism, all of these are not really being addressed 
through the lens of our culture or our value system. They've, they're basically being addressed by through imported values from Western feminism. And I think that there's a lot of damage that can be done by importing solutions from a totally different value system. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong. The solutions need to be different, but also there's this, the word agenda that's used very often when women talk about the things that we need, the things that we need specifically to our situation, the double forgot what he called it, like the Jewish woman experience. Oh, the multiple consciousness? The multiple consciousness, yeah. So it's all dumped on, oh, you're feminist, and women don't want to call themselves a feminist, especially Haredi women or yeshivish women, because it's associated Mm -hmm. with Western feminism, when there are needs that need to be addressed, and the fear of being labeled a feminism is so great that they'll just keep their mouth shut because they don't want to be associated with that. Yeah, and I would take that even a step further and say that one really big issue with global feminism is this idea of a backlash. I mean, and it's not just in feminism. There, this idea that when we feel like we're being forced to do something, then we we like have this backlash where we come back like even stronger in our own position, meaning that by the reform movement coming in and trying to to force the Haredi radio station to to have women's voices, the Haredim come back even stronger in terms of women not being shown in any media or their voices not being heard in any, you know, they become even stricter with it because they feel really threatened, like their lifestyle becomes really threatened, meaning it's actually causing more harm to women in those communities. reminding me of an abusive situation sometimes when people want to come in from the outside and rescue the victim. If they're in, in a relationship, in a marriage, very often they can, may cause more damage if they're not doing it properly or with the full support and the agency and willingness of the victim party. Yes. So, yeah. so firstly, you have to assume, assuming that there actually is an issue then it has to be done with care and caution. And secondly, you have to make sure that there's actually an issue in the first place, meaning sometimes there might not be an issue there. Sometimes it might be that Haredi women in Israel don't feel oppressed. And the only way to know if they do is to be their allies, to ask them what issues are important to them, what issues they want to fight. So it's interesting you brought up the Kalisha aspect of it because we did spend spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about Kalisha and I'm one of these singers on one hand I do push for more platforms for women to be able to sing on the other hand I don't see a need to go and sing on a Haredi platform on a Haredi radio station right I think Instagram is much more useful for me did you want to comment on that or do we move on I think that's good like I the only reason that... I'm not a Haredi woman, listen, though. Yeah, yeah, no, well, that's exactly the point. The people pushing that lawsuit also aren't Haredi They're not even listening to that radio station. They don't They don't care about that radio station. They, they're they pushing it for a specific... Agenda. It's cultural imperialism. They're pushing it to... Yeah, they are. They're, they're, they have an agenda for the way... They want to create a certain type of society in Israel, and they want to push that on the people here, and that's a form of imperialism. That's a form of cultural imperialism. 
or one of the goals for your work is to establish legitimacy to the unique issues Jewish women have to get that advocacy for them and separate it from Western feminism? Is that the angle? Yeah, I think there's multiple angles. I think for women who want to help women in Israel, the angle is if you want to do that, do it in a way that's actually good for women in Israel. That's actually helping them in a way they want to be helped and according to their beliefs and values and culture. And on the flip side, if I can get women to do that, then I think the the backlash will will weaken. And I think women in Israeli communities won't be, like you said, won't be so turned off by the term feminism, which also I've heard a lot of women say, like, I don't identify as feminist because they haven't really been given any of their options. The only feminism they've been offered is a feminism that doesn't suit their needs. But I think it has to start with the women, the women who already do identify as feminists. I think it has to start with them because it already has started with them. And I think they need to like change the way that they're approaching it. I do have an episode coming out with Rabanit Dasi Fruchter. I'm not sure which one's going to come out first. And she is a Mahara. I don't know if you know her personally, but can you? And she didn't really address the historical slash backlash slash all that context that comes with what she's doing. In her words, she's too busy involved in community leading activities all day. She's so busy. She's not concerned or she's so removed from what it culturally means to be doing what she's doing, even though obviously she does get comments here and there or she used to get that when she was starting out. How can you comment on that? Because the women who are Yuatzar Halakha or who are in those newer leadership roles, talk to me about who that person, what type of person is doing that and how do they make it okay to label themselves feminists in that way? What about this experience makes it kosher for them to identify as feminists? I can't comment on how they feel and make their choices are kosher or not, but I can say that it makes sense to me that women living in an individualistic society would want the ability to achieve individualistic success in their communities. And the way that that's traditionally, and I don't want to say traditionally, I'll, I'll say traditionally in the modern world been achieved, been accomplished in Jewish society is through Torah learning in a male approach to Torah learning meaning being an expert of Talmud and being a community leader in the way that men have traditionally been community leaders. That's how you achieve success in the Jewish community. Or rather, that's how you, you would be defined as like a successful Jew. And so it makes sense to me in, in a society where that's value that women would want that opportunity to. And I guess that's, that, that is Western feminism. That's the application of Western feminism on, on the Jewish people's issues. I actually recently came out with an article on visionmag.org talking about the difference between male leadership and female leadership. I actually meant to send it to you for this and I forgot. Well, we could link it in the show notes. You could send it to me. Yeah, after. sure. I'll just briefly say what it what it's about. The traditional male form of Jewish leadership is very much what must I do or what mustn't I do? And if I must do it, how do I do it? That's what men have, that, that's the arena that men lead in. And that's why they have to be experts in Gemara and Halakha. And that's why they, they're the one, the POSIX, they're the ones determining what the Jewish people need to be doing and how to do it. Female leadership in Jewish society has historically been very different. We are what I like to call the moral fiber of Jewish society, 
meaning we have the ability in many cases to know what's the right thing to do. I'll say intuitive ability, the intuitive ability to know what's the right thing to do, meaning not what must we do in this case, but what should we do in this case. So I can think of an example where a person goes to ask their rabbi, I have this particular circumstance. Do I need to make aliyah right now? Is it still a halakha for me to make aliyah, even though A, B, and C? And the rabbi might say, given A, B, and C, no, right now you don't need to make aliyah. But a female leadership role would be to say to him, that's true, but given A, B, and C, I guess you don't need to make aliyah. But if you can physically, you, you should. And that, that form of leadership, because we're living in a society that's very much valued the male form of leadership, has really been weakened in Jewish society in recent centuries. And it's, and it's be, become even worse because women, not only has their form of leadership been devalued as a result and as a result of living in, in these societies, they've actually turned away from it and kind of dismissed that form of leadership as invaluable on their own also. And they've started moving towards this other form of leadership, this male leadership form. And you can see that in the, with the creation of Ma'arats and Rabats. And that's been to the detriment of Jewish society, meaning we really are lacking that form of leadership. We need that. And in a Jewish society where everything is, is just like halakha based, you know, what's the, what's the final answer? We're missing a lot of the, the context of, of like our bigger national mission. And I think women really should be providing that. I think that's where we really like come in as strong. So it's understandable to me why Maharats exist, but I also think it's act- like to the detriment of our society. And it's harsh. <laughs> so what do you think is a more value-based representation for women leadership roles? One of the things that I think post-colonial Jewish feminism needs to push is revaluing collectivist society. Meaning the more collectivist that our society is and the less individualistic, the more value the woman's leadership role can bring to the table. In general, the woman's role is, is much more, is much more collectivist based. I find it very similar to the role of the Kohen in Jewish society. I think there are a lot of similarities. I think the Kohen also in many ways, his, his leadership role is, is much more like should based or like getting, getting people to want to do something as opposed to what they have to do. And it's very much about like serving the public. Right. Like the coin's job is very, it's actually the most honored role in Hebrew society. And it's all about service. It's, all, it's basically a servant to the Jewish people. Now I'm not saying that women are servants to the Jewish people also, but they're the traditional Jewish role is highly valued and t- super integral to a collective based society. But when, when we're living in a society that's not that, then, then our role becomes just a lot more minuscule. So one of the things that I think needs to be pushed is is really revaluing collectivist society. And I think that that would automatically make women's roles more valued. Can you break down what collectivist society means? Paint a picture of what would our culture have to look like for women sure. to shine as leaders? I'll give it you a story. So I had a friend who went to Beis Yaakov, and she told me this story that she had a substitute teacher once who who told all of the girls that when they get married, they should make sure that they are always the ones to take out the trash and they should never let their husband take out the trash because you don't want to be married to a garbage man. You want to be married to a uh, Tamir Chacham, right? So obviously my friend was really like mortified 
and disgusted. And she was she was upset about it because why should she have to be the garbage woman? Like, like she should take like the bad role so that her husband can be the come. Like, where is her individual sense of self? Like, where is her her individual success, right? And I obviously understand where she was coming from, but that's actually not what made me so upset about the story. What made me upset about the story is what is so bad about being a garbage man? Why is being a garbage man worse than being a Tamir Chacham? A garbage man is super necessary for society to function, meaning it's one of the most necessary things, one of the most basic things that needs to, ha- to happen. It's why garbage men are paid so much money because they because you can't really have a society functioning without them. And yet in in an individualistic society, we're undervaluing the garbage man because his role is like kind of gross. And it's so much like better. It's like so much more. It seems so much nicer and better to be someone who just studies all the time. Now, that's all I'm not I don't want to downplay the importance of Torah learning. But in an individualistic society, it makes sense. That's considered more valuable, special, prestigious, important, prestigious. Yeah. In a collectivist society, the garbage man would at the very least be equally valued because you need garbage men for society to function. It's less about changing what anyone is practically doing and more about changing the mindset of people in what's an important role. Meaning if suddenly garbage men were super valued and they were kids every time they saw garbage truck were cheering and like, you know, going crazy and like getting autographs and CEOs of high tech companies were like kind of seen as losers then kids would grow up and, and they'd want to be garbage men. They wouldn't want to be the CEO of high tech companies, right? So just bring this back to women, to Jewish women, if society is suddenly seeing the woman's role, whatever that may be, as being super important and special and necessary and valued, then women would grow up wanting to take on that role. And there might still be a few women who want to be Gemara scholars, because that's like what they're naturally drawn to. Just like there might still be people who want to be CEOs of high tech companies, but it wouldn't be, they wouldn't want it because of the prestige. They would want it because they genuinely want it. And I think we need to get to that place where women are able to choose what they want to do with their lives based on what they actually want to be doing with their lives, not based on what's considered prestigious in an individualistic culture. How is that different than? socialism or communism it's not the same at all you just, i mean no but based on what you're saying is it's a mindset shift not an actual value-based shift where everyone's suddenly getting paid the same amount or garbage men are getting paid more than ceos of high-tech companies versus in a socialist or communistic society culture that would be represented in actual pay right well okay so i will say that right so so i'm not saying that Garbage men should be paid the same as as CEOs of high tech companies, although maybe they should be. The way that jobs are valued is often reflected in salaries, but that's not necessarily what I'm referring to. For example, a lot of Torah scholars don't get paid anything or get paid very, very little. But in our society, they're still valued members of society. Same with Kohanim, by the way. Kohanim are not paid anything for their work. It's free service. They, they live on, I mean, they live on donations, donations. essentially, mm-hmm. but they're the, yeah, but they're, they're the most valued members of, of society. That being said, one initiative that I think w- should be pushed in Israel is that women who decide to be full-time mothers and homemakers should be paid a salary by the government. Because I think that I know they are contributing 
hugely to Israeli society. Okay, that that's a huge can of worms you just opened up. <laughs> Are you a homemaker? I like to think so. Yeah, I, I do work because I live in Israel and we have no money. <laughs> but if I was at, if and when I am asked, what do I do? My first answer is always that I'm a homemaker and a mother. And actually, the truth is, in Hebrew, the term for homemaker is akeret abayit. And akeret comes from the same it comes from the same word as ikar, which means, or the point, which means the point, no, like, like the main point, like the main person, meaning, meaning there, even the Hebrew word for, for a homemaker is that is actually a very valued position. Like I am the main person of my home. Like I'm it, like it's centered Versus around me. Stay at home mom, right? <laughs> right. Which, is, which by the way, stay at home, anyone who's been a stay at home mom, which I have been in the past, knows that you rarely stay at home. <laughs> like you're constantly, you're constantly on the move. It, it, it is like a full-time job. It's really hard. I think it's really undervalued. And I think pay would reflect that. Well, that's a very interesting proposition. And in many, many Western countries do want to incentivize women to have children. So they have paid leave for two, three years very often. Mm-hmm. But but those women are not having, you know, six to 10 kids. Right. <laughs> right every year and a half. So tell me what you're working on now. And then we'll wrap up. This year, we launched something called a post-colonial Jewish feminist fellowship, where we accepted five people. It happens to be that they're all women, but we did have men apply, and it was we were open to that. But we ended up accepting five women to really look into issues surrounding Jewish women and to try to create some more theory. Meaning, at the end of this fellowship, which is due to finish at the end of the summer. We'll be publishing, hopefully, a publication with several articles about different topics, some more intangible, I guess, like idea-based articles and some more practical with more practical concepts. But that's really what we're trying to do. And what we're also incorporating into that, because one thing that we're trying to incorporate is also to expand the theory to LGBTQ issues and transgender issues as well. And coming at it from like a very Torah value based perspective. When you do have more information on that, I would like to do a follow up episode. Sure. <laughs> because we've come a long way as a society from even three years ago when it comes to LGBT issues. A lot more people, non religious people, secular Americans and Western people calling out a lot of the behaviors that they're not liking, people taking advantage of it. So, I, I've done a series on LGBT maybe over a year ago, maybe two years ago. I, a follow-up could bring value <laughs> to the conversation. Yeah. Do you want to comment be. on that? Do you agree with what I said? I'm not sure. I I, I guess I'm curious to hear what you mean by uh, taking, taking it too far. Like yeah, woman far. of the year being a transgender woman who mm-hmm. has been a, a woman for one year versus women who have been their, women their entire lives. Or a woman... A transgender woman winning the gold medal. You don't have any transgender men winning gold medals for obvious reasons <laughs> because it wouldn't work like that. So right. I would say, or transgender woman advertising uh, sanitary products for women. I would say these are areas that made a lot of people who were tolerating or quiet or accepting make them reevaluate is this taking things too far? Maybe 
for one family to have two out of four kids experiencing ideas of transgender when they're 12 and 13 may be not a coincidence, but a cultural influence. So, so there is more information now and more pushback than just sitting and accepting and saying, you know, it's a tiny percent of our society and we have to accept them and love them versus they are changing. They're doing gender operations on three-year-olds and allowing minors to mutate parts of their bodies against their parents' consent. So there, there's a lot of movement there that, so I don't know if yeah. I'm going to include this on this episode, but if you do want to go. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So that's definitely happening in Western countries. That's not so much my focus. I mean, yeah, I'm aware that all that's happening and I definitely have opinions on it. But I guess what I'm I'm more interested in is taking a very, very honest look at what our culture has to say about LGBTQ issues and and coming at this not having an answer, like not knowing what the answer is yet and trying to not have an agenda. Meaning I think a lot of the approaches so far with LGBTQ issues, especially like in the modern Orthodox community, has been to try to fit Torah into whatever the West is currently accepting as being PC. And I think that that's a dangerous and wrong approach. So what, what I'd like to do is, is take a very honest look and not know, not knowing what's gonna, what the answer is gonna be at what the Torah has to say about these issues and then trying to develop a theory around it. Cool. Well, thank you for doing this work. Thank you for taking time out of your life, your busy life to share your knowledge and learnings with us. And where can people find you? So I, I write for visionmag.org. It's the magazine, the online magazine of Vision Movement. You can also look on visionmovement.org for the things that we're doing, including the fellowship. Hopefully this is not just the, a one-time thing. We're planning to do it every year. So if anyone's interested in applying, keep an eye out for that um, at the end, I guess. Um, and send us link in maybe like six that months. I can include. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Okay. Thank you, Sharona. Thank you. Good luck to you with everything that you're doing. And thank you. Thanks for being a Francisca Show listener. I hope you have a great rest of your week. See you next time.